Hello, and welcome to An Aromatic Life. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you today because, well, there's something that's been bothering me for a long time now. You see, I don't know about you, but I love going to art museums and seeing exhibits from all kinds of artists and time periods, even specific cultures. It's great because artists make you think about things. They give you new perspectives and often provoke, which I love. But here's the thing. This is what's bothering me so much. There's almost never a focus on olfaction. This visual medium, these paintings, this medium is mostly interpreted from a visual perspective. What about our other senses? After all, we perceive our world through all of our senses, not just sight, right? So when I heard that my guest today had just written and released a book about scent and art, I got a little giddy, I'm not gonna lie. And I was so happy to get the chance to speak to her. This book that she's written is fascinating and frankly, mind expanding. In this book, she puts smell front and center. All interpretations are through the olfactive lens. I should say nose, right? Not lens. Notice how oculocentric our modern language is. Ugh, it's so frustrating. Anyway, of course, like with any research, you have to narrow your focus, otherwise you'll get mad, which she did. Her book focuses on the time period from 1850 to 1914, specifically in pre-Raphaelite art and aestheticism. So during that time, smell loomed large in cultural discourse, thanks to the mid-century fear of miasma, the drive for sanitation reform, and the rise in synthetic perfumery. At the same time, the science of olfaction remained largely mysterious, which prompted an impulse to see smell and inspired some artists to picture scent in order to better know and control it. It's incredibly fascinating. You're going to love this conversation. So let me introduce you to my guest. Dr. Christina Bradstreet is an art historian, author, and educator specializing in 19th century painting. She is head of programs at the Association for Art History in the UK and curator of Seeing Sense, the Pre-Raphaelites, which is taking place at the Barber Institute of Fine Arts in Birmingham, England, starting next month in October through February 2024. Christina is also an art and mindfulness expert and meditations creator for the art and mindfulness app Slow. Her previous roles include courses and events programmer at National Gallery in London and director of careers at Sotheby's Institute of Art, also in London. Her latest endeavor is as author of this wonderful new book, which we discuss here, called Scented Visions, Smell and Art, from 1850 to 1914. You're going to love what she has to say. So let's get started. Enjoy my conversation with Christina Bradstreet. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frauke Galia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. 
So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. I want to welcome you to an aromatic life. Christina, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so excited. I think I mentioned this before we started recording, but I was so happy that you wrote this book. This is a reference book, not only for the art world, but as you might know, I have a lot of people who listen who are perfumers, who are aromatherapists, who are in the scented world in other ways, other than art. And this is going to be such a wonderful reference book for them as well, because I think if you're in the world of smell, scent, <laughs> anything olfactive, you know, this book is just going to be a wonderful reference. So thank you for writing it. And we're going to talk all about it today. So thank you. All right. So I want to begin by asking you a question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. It's just the question of what does the sense of smell mean to you? When I say sense of smell, what comes to mind? I think it means truth. So I talk in my book about smell being the essence of something. So smell comes from the heart of matter. Literally, odor molecules are released from gross matter. So that's why there's this association of ideas around scent and soul and spirit, like a perfume being the spirit of a flower. So odors herald truth. They warn us what is bad and they tell us what is good and I think it's that's not just a kind of intellectual concept I think it really kind of plays true in my life and I assume everybody's lives that we know that's how we know who to avoid or who's just not quite right for us who's good for us what foods the good to eat and all of that but the other thing I think is comes to mind is about comfort and how those people and things that are really good for us so, I mean, the people often talk about the smell of their babies. I've got a 16-month-old and I just love smelling her head and her hair. And I really regret that when she was very young, I was always using nappy cream because I thought that it was essential, sort of every nappy change. And I think that kind of took away some of the kind of natural smell, yeah. which I regret now. Aww. But I think the other thing that <laughs> smell means to me is beautiful writing so I feel like I'm perhaps a little bit different from some of your guests on this podcast in that I'm I don't really consider myself this kind of great nose or smell expert in a way what I think I'm an expert in is 19th century ideas about smell I'm an art historian and I just I'm really kind of drawn to beautiful writing the beautiful passages Some of 19th century writing is very poetic around smells. So, for example, Helen Keller, the deaf and blind woman um, at the turn of the 20th century, writing about how the smell of daisies would take her back to being in the meadow as a child with her teacher, where where she was learning the names of things for the first time and and they were being spelt out onto her hand. The smell of daisies would take her back to that. Or she describes the scent of young men as something elemental out of fire, storm and sea salt, pulsating with buoyance and desire. And I just kind of love all of that really beautiful writing. And I've tried to include as much of it in my book as I can. And I think that's then inspired me to try to write about smell as briefly as I could within the context of an academic book, which it is. Yeah. I mean, you're 
book, it, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. And it has all those references. It's as much a, a visual reference because you have a lot of the art pieces, but at the same time, you bring in so much more just through the writing. So yeah, well done, I have to say. I'm just curious, when you were young, did you connect with smelling much? Is that something that you were thinking about? Or is it something that came later to you? I mean, I, I do have, I mean, today, there are smells that will take me back to memories of childhood, but I don't remember thinking much about smell as such. Okay. Um, I was quite a bookish person. I've got my bookcase behind me <laughs> as we do this. So when I was a child, I wanted to be a naturalist and I knew, you know, all the Latin names for wildflowers, etc. Yeah. But I was really more of an indoor naturalist, which is what, probably why I never became a naturalist. Because <laughs> I was more interested in looking at nature books and producing my own little books with my drawings of birds or trees or whatever. I did go out and, you know, track animal prints or set beetle traps etc but that was always secondary to the reading and writing and I think it's been the same with smell really okay um, that's why I say I think I'm perhaps a bit different from your usual guest that I came to it through study I came to it through reading Victorian texts at university and being mesmerized by the quotes ah. but I do find myself holding things up to my baby Lucy to smell so holding up roses or the other day it was her shoe <laughs> Good. And yesterday I actually noticed her pretending to smell something. I can't oh, remember what it was now, but it was something that didn't have a smell, but she held it to her nose and she was sniffing it and doing a mm, expression. Oh, yeah. So she's obviously got that from me, from the fact that I'm handing her things to smell. In fact, we just went for a little walk and passed some lavender and I made sure that she smelled it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Maybe it will be more important to her in childhood than it was. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because... I can confess that it wasn't something that I connected with at all. Like if I would have told myself as a as a young girl that I was going to be doing what I'm doing now and being so fascinated by all things smell, it would have been like crazy because it wasn't something that my family connected with at all. It was always the visual or the auditory. It was never smells. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so wonderful because you are connected with it now. I try to do it. I have two boys. They're in their 20s, though, so they're <laughs> not... That's not really their main focus at the moment, but they do on the odd occasion, you know, reference something of smell because they know I'm so involved in it. If I can just get the young generation to connect with it more than I guess our generations did, that's great. And you're passing that on already. So, And I, I mentioned my interest in nature as a child, and I think, which stays with me, and I think that connects into my interest in smell, that if in the book, uh, an awful lot of the smell references are, you know, the smell of pine forests, or, you know, dewy mushrooms, and, you know, it's always very kind of the natural smells that, that have interested me the most, right? and, and that kind of macro attention to the world the sort of meditate I'm into meditation now as well I write meditations on paintings um, and I think it's that kind of slowing down taking time to appreciate nature and to meditate on it that's fascinating I, I, I read that yeah. about you that you do meditations that, through your, your work that you do now and so explain that to me a little bit so how does that process work is it a, is it a class or a course you take or, or how does that work so until recently, I worked at the National Gallery in the Learning Department. And when I arrived at the gallery, they had in their learning strategy um, that mindfulness would be an important 
part of the learning program and I didn't know anything about mindfulness and no, I don't think anyone else right, <laughs> right. so I, I took a, a mindfulness course the MBSR course which is the I think six or seven week training course um, sort of introduces you to mindfulness and I remember on the very first session that I went to walking home from the session I'm really feeling like all of my senses were really heightened, you know, smelling the smell of the autumn leaves and yeah. noticing dewdrops, um, you know, hearing the crunch of my footsteps and, and all the colours seeming so vivid. And I thought, wow, if you could bring this kind of attention to looking at artworks, yeah. wouldn't that be amazing? So I started off doing events at, at the National Gallery around that. And then during lockdown, we created a series of there are eight five-minute meditations where I try to kind of link the themes of paintings with meditation ideas in different ways um, and now I'm since I'm leaving the gallery I'm writing for a meditation app which may or may not be called Kunstel because I think they might have just changed oh, okay the name <laughs> TBD um, but it's a new kind of startup product to, to watch this space for Oh, that's exciting. Good. That's fascinating. So you mentioned, I'm just curious, because you, you've written this whole book about scent and art. And how did you kind of not to go through your whole life story, but you said you kind of started, it was, was it more through university that you started getting interested in the scent part? Is it through reading, as you mentioned? or Yeah, so wrote my undergraduate dissertation on the pre-Raphaelite artist, Dante Gabriel Dante Gabrielli Rossetti and it was called something like the language of health and disease and the critical response to Dante Gabrielli Rossetti so I was looking at how his paintings were seen by critics as being diseased and unhealthy kind of they used a lot of pathological language in the critical responses to him and there was one paragraph where his paintings and poetry were described by critics. I mean, one paragraph in my thesis where I described how critics were talking about his paintings as emanating a kind of sickly, sweet, miasmic, cloying perfume that would come out of the painting into the space of the viewer and emasculate the male viewer. I thought, oh, my God, God. <laughs> that's a fascinating metaphor around smell. Yes. What other metaphors around smell are there? Um, so that's sort of how I got started paying attention and then I did my master's degree in art history at the Courtauld Institute in London but actually between the undergraduate degree and the master's I was working at the cabinet office in London and I used to take sort of longer and longer lunch breaks exploring London I was only about 21 22 at the time and one lunchtime, I found myself at the book fair under Westminster Blackfriars Bridge. And I found this book, Alan Corban's The Fowl and the Fragrance. Yes. Um, which I just saw it and I knew I had to have it. I didn't know why, particularly apart from that I'd written that paragraph in my BA dissertation. But I didn't have any money on me. <laughs> it was a cash only um, thing. So I hid the book. <laughs> rather than speaking to anyone I hid the book in the bottom of one of the crates and thought I'd come back for it the next day but I basically messed up the bookseller's system oh no so I, 
I had to go back for it about five times, I think, before oh. I finally found it. And then because it turns out that the Fowl and the Fragrant is like the classic book on the cultural history of smell in 18th century France. And it goes from the sort of stench of the tanneries and cesspits in the streets yes. of Paris through to the perfumeries in grass. And it's the book that Patrick Suskin's novel Perfume is right. um, inspired off of, right? Yeah. yeah, it's inspired by it. So I then thought with my, well, I then went on to do a PhD and I thought that having read that book, in fact, actually, I never read that book really carefully, actually, because it's very dense. But right, I, it I, is, I and it's true. I have it, it too. Yeah, it's very dense. Yeah, dip into it. And I thought I'll t- start off where he leaves off. So he, his book kind of finishes about 1850 and I start around 1850 and that I would being an art historian, I would sort of apply that kind of cultural history of smell, but to art and see where that took me. Oh, wow. And then did your, you had an advisor, I imagine, right? For your, yeah, did, they, did they think that you were crazy for wanting to do something with smell or was it, were they like, yeah, this is new, this is different. You know, I'm just curious how open they were to the idea because it's just such an underappreciated sense, right? Yeah, so I was studying at the Courtauld Institute and my supervisor there, I told her about the idea and uh, she was, oh, the smells of the working class. So she was thinking of kind of crowd scenes, I think. Okay. And then I went and spoke to somebody else, Linda Nida Birkbeck, and she was like, oh, genies in bottles, genies coming out of perfume bottles. And I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. Yes. (laughs) I think as it when it came down to it, actually the kind of smells of crowd scenes do do come into it but I was kind of more inspired by that kind of that more poetic imagination I suppose yes so yeah it was a, a labor of love really <laughs> I yeah, started I'm... my PhD in 2003 okay finished it in 2007 okay and then I had a postdoctoral fellowship in 2009 which was I think they funded me for six or nine months to to work on the book and instead I spent the whole time panicking in the bath I was turning 30 <laughs> so I spent the whole time panicking about turning 30 and about not knowing how to write this book <laughs> um, and then I got a, a proper job <laughs> and then and that's really when I started writing the book sort of you know, an hour before work on the train, mm. get home, have tea, wait till sort of midnight or something. And wow, yeah, it seems like doing a job that wasn't really quite the right job for me was what really got me down to doing it. I mean, well, thank you for doing it. I know all those extra hours, I think they really paid off. <laughs> this is going to be a, a well-deserved reference book in, in the community. It, it so. um, did probably take me as long as Darwin took to write Origin of the Species. I like that comparison. Was... That's good. Yeah. Even though Darwin wasn't into smells at all, was he? He didn't really believe in the sense of smell. He certainly thought of it as a kind of animalistic. Yeah, I guess that's sense. what I'm referring Like, it wasn't one of the elevated senses, like sight. No, exactly. Or, or yeah. And so his ideas are about the kind of man moving from being on fours and 
close to all the smells around the yeah. ground and bottoms exactly. <laughs> standing up and seeing the world and becoming elevated exactly. looking around that kind of idea of, of the intellect as being visual is really important for yeah. the book look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So let's talk about the time period. I wanted to just, if you don't mind, before we start, so the period is 1850 to 1914. Um, And I just did a little outline because I wanted to share with the listener who hasn't gotten this book yet. I just wanted to share what the main chapters are just to give people an idea of what it is. Part one is seeing smell and part two is decoding smell. So that's kind of how you've delineated the two areas. And then within part one, seeing smell, it's the fallen angel, and then art and stench, picturing perfume and smelling pictures. Part two, decoding smell is scent, memory, visions, then scent and soul, the erotics of scent, and death by perfume. So that gives you guys who are listening a really good idea of kind of what the book is, well, not what the book is about, but how it's organized. And it's just so rich with information and we're only going to probably be able to touch the surface obviously here today. So I want to encourage everybody to go out and get this book. It's a wonderful reference book. I'll have information in the show notes to go and get it. It's readily available. I know I have a copy here, so it's, it's easy to get even here in the U.S. But let's talk about this time period, 1815 to 1940, because you said it was kind of a, you started there after the foul and the fragrant, you know, kind of stopped. Can you set the scene for us, kind of what was happening during this time period, culturally and politically? I mean, this is a period of rapid and immense technological and industrial change. You've got trains and telegraph, gaslight, electricity, radio, telephone. By the turn of the 20th century, there's also a kind of drive for motion, whether it's the car or cinema. And all of this leads to new sensory experiences you know, whether it's the screeches and joltings of being on a train for the first time, or it's the tastes and stench and colours of the London smog, fog and smoke combined. These new sensations were everywhere. So I think artists are really exploring these sensory experiences and envisioning new creative possibilities to express them, whether they're in embracing them or recoiling from them and the the kind of fascination of sense symbolism is is all kind of one part of that heightened sensibility to the senses in the age that comes with all of that change um it's also a period of rural depopulation and the growth of cities also sanitation reform after the great stench of london in 1858 basil builds the embankment the um, sewerage system in london I'm focusing a lot here on London, I guess, because and, and England, because that's at the heart of the book, really. 
and where I'm from, although the book does go out wider. But in England and in America, also there is a huge influx of Irish immigrants following yes. the potato famine, the rise of Catholicism, which goes with that. So in 1850, the Catholic Church was allowed a, an ecclesiastical hierarchy in England for the first time since the Reformation, which was viewed with huge suspicion and hatred by many English. It's a period of rising drug addiction, Ooh. not least laudanum opiates as a painkiller. There's is obviously it's a period of the kind of rise in women's liberation, which gathered a pace towards the end of the century and early 20th century, which again was also kind of met with fear and resistance. And it's a period of war, of course. I start in the 1850s, the Crimean War in Europe and Russia, civil war in America and all that entails regards race relation. And I end up in the period sort of right going right up to the First World War when art becomes, I think, so much more focused on the machine age and motion and modernity and industrialization and that kind of quiet spiritual meditational focus on the macro macro so important in art in the kind of art that I'm writing about in the book of kind of women leaning in and drinking in the scent of a rose imagining something beautiful or, or poetical seems kind of outdated and mm -hmm. irrelevant I suppose so I think one of the things that I hadn't realised when I started researching the book is just how much all of those cultural history things that are going on in, in society would actually intertwine with the way in which smell is thought about. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that actually leads me to want to ask you, you talk about the nose of the era, right? Which I love that expression, nose of the era. So how was the sense of smell perceived at that time? I mean, my book spans a long period, 64 um, years, yes, um, so it does true. change over that period. Um, okay. Um, but in the 1850s, smell really was associated with fear. Um, and I think it's maybe only because of COVID that we can have a sense of understanding of that, of this kind of idea of fear of, of something invisible around you. True. So... In, I think it was 1848, Edwin Ch Chadwick, who was the public health officer in England, said that all smell is disease. So not just stench, but perfume too. So there was this real desire to see smell and visualise it. And if you could do that, you, then you could control it. So in science, you see a kind of desire to try and work out how you could see smell under the microscope, or could you map it could you imagine it like sound waves um kind of smell waves could you find a way to see it and then control it by the 1890s the fear of smell has faded in many ways because people no longer believed in miasma theory the idea that all smell is disease it had been replaced by germ theory as the way in which disease is transmitted so that kind of real fear of smell isn't there anymore but still the kind of association with smell as something a bit dangerous lingers on and it still has that kind of hint of something thrilling and potentially dangerous but that could by that time spark the imagination in, in exciting ways it was kind of more more thrilling I guess 
Um, from so fear to there. thrill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so like in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, the miasma of his lair. Right. Um, and, and in my conclusion, I compare and contrast two images, one from the 1850s and one from 1912, both of which imagine smell under the microscope. One is an image from a punch cart, a drop of miasmic Thames water. And in it, you see all these kind of little bodies of demons and ghouls and monsters. And then the image from 1912 is a leak perfume bottle in it's a circular bottle and it looks like you're looking through a magnifying glass into the frosted glass of the bottle and you're seeing these fairies which are an embodiment of the coaty scent so you yeah there's kind of desire to see smell but it becomes something more beautiful and poetic and um, and kind of spiritual or um yeah, just before the First World War. And then, as I say, I think that kind of um, the First World War accelerates modernist sensibilities and, and all of that seems rather archaic and spiritual compared to the realities of a war. So if we go now, if we hone in more on the, the art world and, and artists at that time, what role did smell or scent play in communicating what artists at that time were trying to convey? What I found is that smell could be used, or its representation, smell or its representation in art could be used to convey everything um, from the joys of spring to the sorrows of grief. Um, nostalgia for lost innocence is a theme that comes up a lot, um, but also delight in wicked pleasures. So, for example, in Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray, he described Dorian's foray into the art of perfumery. And it says he sets out to determine what there was in frankincense that made one mystical, in ombergris that stirred the passions, and violets that woke the, mem woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, and in champak that stained the imagination. So it really could be everything. The significance of scent was complex and, and nuanced. A bit like pathetic fallacy in the weather in literature, you know, scent could really set a mood, but very often it was evoked just a sense of suggesting some kind of something mysterious or spiritual, but really the whole gamut of human emotions. At the core of my book is Victorian aestheticism, the late pre-Raphaelite focus on beauty and art for art's sake. And for those artists, I think scent encapsulated a number of their sort of key tenants, if you like, hedonism, pleasure in exquisite sensations, preoccupation with beauty, um, and the penchant for art to evoke moods and emotions and vague yet keenly felt sensations. I think for them, scent inspired associations with all of those things. What, this I found fascinating. So during this time, during this period, smelling was also defined by art as an irrational feminized pursuit um so tell me a little bit how the female and the female beauty were portrayed during this time kind of as it relates to smell yeah i mean the overwhelming number of images of my in my book are of women um women daydreaming smelling fragrant flowers burning leaves putting on perfume making potions magic potions 
performing magic, shimmying and dancing in incense fumes, swooning and suffocating, even dying amid intoxicating fragrances. So yeah, smell really was kind of associated with the female and with the fem or the feminine and the irrational with spirituality and magic and eroticism and seduction and memories and dreams and reverie and all, all of that where uh, the visual is the sense of maps and microscopes and explorers and you know manly pursuits um yes. in comparison so there are far more representations of women smelling or feminine men okay um, maybe talk about that in a bit but yeah so in terms of um, representations of women scent is associated with the femme fatale so I talked about that idea of smell as being associated with disease and being deadly so when we see a painting like for example Rossetti's Venus Verticordia where you have um, a bare-breasted Venus in a very enclosed sort of closeted space crammed in with roses and honeysuckle um it's the kind of idea that the um this femme fatale will lure and seduce with her corrosive personality but also with this um, toxic perfume around her so it's very often shown as an erotic experience okay. So the act of smelling is an erotic experience. So, for example, Waterhouse's The Soul of the Rose, which I have on the cover of the book, which is a painting I really love. Her, the female figures, her cheeks are flushed and her hand is pressed against the fawny stem of roses and her lips are pressed against the petals. She seems to be imagining herself pressed against a lover. Or it could be a kind of auto-erotic, sort of masturbatory image even, perhaps. But the scent is having a kind of drug-like, arousing effect upon her. So I write about that painting in relation to 19th century ideas about the physiology of scent on the body as having a kind of arousing effect. But the way in which the woman is represented in doing the smelling says so much in different paintings so you know is she daintily tip tilting the rose to the face is she being offered it in a kind of polite gesture of courtship or is she kind of lustily burying the nose in it in a disheveled state sort of suggesting you know sexual impropriety or kind of fantasy of sexual abandon or is it um, a child's inquisitiveness about the world or even a, a young girl's kind of first sexual experience you know um, or re erotic experience most images of women smelling have their eyes closed and are, and are lost in reverie so it's a kind of suggestion that scent is inspiring an inward turn away from the here and now into memory and daydream lust and longing so their eyes are closed but the male viewer looking at the painting is free and invited to to gaze upon them. Interesting. Um, I also uh, write a lot about paintings of the American Impressionist Charles Courtney Curran, um, who did a number of fairy paintings like The Perfume of Roses or The Scent of the Rose, where um, the fairy is a kind of embodiment of the perfume. 
there's a kind of visual analogy between the two. So there, where you have a fairy as a scent, there's a kind of safe fantasy of these kind of remote yet sexually available women whiling away the hours, passively tending to flowers, you know, completely disengaged from modernity and all thoughts of women's independence and liberation. So I think for some male artists or their patrons, that was a kind of response to the threat of, of women's liberation at the time. And then one of my favourite images in the book is a photograph from the Whitman studio of Helen Keller, um, who I talked about before, the deaf and blind American girl who I expect you all know about. She's holding a rose. She's 24 when this photograph was taken. She's very elegantly dressed and she's reading a, a Braille book while smelling a rose. Um, and she seems to be computing information from the rose, um, just as her fingers are uh, taking information from the raised text of the Braille book. Um, but it's the way that she holds the rose perpendicularly to her nose. It really reminds me of photographs from the same period of Edwardian women using the newfangled telephone, <laughs> where they're kind of very stiffly holding the earpiece while speaking into the mouthpiece. And, and of course, she was friends with Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. He was the first to recognize her potential and he set up the Helen Keller Fund that paid for her education and she dedicated her book to him, her first book to him. So I think this kind of visual parallel to telephone use was probably conscious, but it's a kind of mystic counterpart to the telephone use. So the rose is a kind of apparatus transmitting fragrant messages to her messages which the sighted person would miss but she's attuned to being deaf and blind what I love about that image is that it takes the trope of the beautiful woman eyes closed lost in reverie which would have been very familiar by that time smelling a rose but instead not presenting a passive anonymous daydreamer but instead Keller the writer and thinker the intellect with the rose and the braille book as her kind of tools of her trade. So a real kind of picture of her agency in comparison to many 19th century, earlier 19th century images of blind people as with the rose and the braille book as her kind of tools of her trade. So a real kind of picture of her agency in comparison to many 19th century, earlier 19th century images of blind people as um, what kind of vulnerable or needing support, you know, not strong, independent women. If we look at more of the racialized constructions of femininity in the in Orientalist scenes in quotes, Orientalist, because it's a big topic in perfumery right now. This just this word of mm -hmm. Oriental. <laughs> um, yeah. It where it fetishizes the culture of the Middle East and North Africa. Can you talk about that a little bit and give some examples? Yeah, so the, one of the examples I give is, is not a well-known painting, I don't think, um, but it's a good example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, it's by an artist called Joan Jimenez y Marta, if I'm saying that at all right, called The Sultan's Favourite, in which you see an odalisk, a, a harem woman, reclining on a, a fur skin. 
and she's surrounded by all these little scattered roses there's a hookah pipe next to her a coffee pots and then the incense fumes are scenting a sprawling body and in the distance you see the the approaching sultan so she's readying herself for him and those kind of images are so ingrained in the 19th century consciousness that even some women artists create images in this vein almost I think without really kind of thinking mm. there are also lots of paintings where you see oriental eastern men sort of sat around smoking on the hookah pipes in the streets and sort of the idea of kind of laziness and indulgence was kind of very prevalent in these very racist images from the period of a kind of an imagined orient rather than a any kind of specific places and culture right right and then there was also i found this fascinating there's also these stereotypical portrayals of race of class of sexuality so can you tell us about the difference in the portrayal of the white middle class heterosexual man versus a, a working class man so the white middle face class heterosexual man is usually shown as well there aren't many images of them smelling you know, men do not smell things that's the conclusion really yeah <laughs> white middle class heterosexual men do not smell things african savages who might be shown kind of on the literally on all fours wow on the hunt. and incredibly racist images but we yeah, have white middle class men where there are images of them smelling it tends to be sort of punch cartoons I did find one Victorian painting by William Powell Frith where the top hatted gentleman is, is holding his handkerchief to his nose to protect his nose from a stench. Um, or they're shown as immune to scent. So, for example, in the book, I show a print of, of a story called The Death of Albine by French artist Leon Khmer. So, just to give you the story of the death of Albine comes from a Zola novel, The Sin of Father Murray. And Albine is a 13-year-old girl who's seduced by a young Catholic priest who then, filled with guilt, returns with even greater kind of fervour back to the folds of the church and his obsession with the Virgin Mary. And this young girl is left suicidal and kills herself by suffocating herself under the scent of flowers. She closes her bedroom door, well, having first filled the room with flowers from the garden of all different kinds, literally cramming every nook and cranny around the window frame, everything with scent, and then dies under this cloud of fragrance. So various artists in the 19th century depicted that scene in different ways. But in the particular print I'm thinking of, we see her body on the bed surrounded by flowers and there's a male figure sat at her bedside I'm not sure if it's her father mourning or whether it's a, a doctor who's come to attend but he's completely unsusceptible to the scents that have killed her wow and then um, I mean working class men um they aren't often shown smelling but they seem to be kind of nose blind. So whereas the middle class top hatted gentleman would be holding the handkerchief to their nose against the scent, they just work in the foundry. I'm thinking of William 
Bell Scott's painting of iron and coal, entirely tolerant of stench. So what I found is that women are the most common protagonists in olfactory imagery in the 19th century because of this association between smell and the feminine. But then the other most common protagonists besides them, but a much sort of reduced extent, are hounds. So you have hunting scenes of dogs on the scent. Non-Westerners, for example, those images of Eastern men smoking hooker pipes in Orientalist paintings. And then homosexual men smelling flowers, for example, or burning incense. So in other words, all those beings who were held to be less civilised than white middle-class men in, the, in this kind of very prejudiced 19th century society yeah. and thought to have a more acute sense of smell because they were closer to the animals in 19th century thought those are the ones that are shown um smelling crazy i mean it just i feel like i'm, I'm thinking about our, our current time and i know we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute but i i feel like that was so ingrained back then it's still so subconsciously in our cultures even today which is sad mm -hmm. Are there other portrayals of what we would call the others, I guess? So, I mean, one of the artists that really interests me, I left it till almost to the very end, almost before publication, before I actually felt confident enough to write about it because it involves ideas about the 19th century bells and smells debate around the theatre of ritualism in High Church of England. And I just found all of that kind of very complicated. Um, but Simeon Solomon's paintings. So Simeon Solomon is a pre-Raphaelite artist. He was friends with Rossetti until he was found in an act of indecency in a public lavatory with a man. And then his career was ruined after that. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with him because of, of homosexuality being illegal in England at that time. So, but he painted some very interesting images. One of them is called Two Acolytes Sensing Pentecost. And it shows two young men approaching a church altar and their bodies are just touching and they're swinging a censer. One of them is singing the censer and the incense fumes are coming out. And then on the altar just behind them, you see lilies and candelabra. So this is at the time when the Catholic church with all of its, kind of theatre of ritualism was seen as an alluring or a, a kind of exciting but safe haven for homosexual men or for some, some homosexual men and it's a time when male homosexuality was illegal obviously in England but also incense was the legality of that was very hotly debated that's where it gets quite complex because you get, have to kind of get into church law. But it was very controversial. There were riots in Stepney in East London about the use of what they called bells and smells in 1859. And then it did become very definitely illegal. So here in that painting, Simeon Solomon is connecting both to the current controversy around the legality of Catholic ritualism in High Church of England in a painting that obliquely hints at illegal homosexuality. <laughs> and you could be reading too much into it, but I think of the incense being released from the censer as even having a kind of phallic ejaculatory kind of symbolism. So although this was a painting that it's a watercolour, small watercolour, that wasn't 
exhibited as far as I know. It still feels like a very bold move, particularly as his fellow pre-Raphaelite artists had been very strongly criticised for being seen as being too religious and too high church in their paintings. Whether or not that's really true is kind of up for a lot of academic discussion, but that's how they were seen because they called themselves the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. It sounded like you know, they were all monks or <laughs> something. So what I love about your book also, I know you say you talk a lot about the Victorian period and like, you know, England specifically, but you do go broad, right? And mm. you go beyond any particular country, even region, and you look internationally, even here to the US. And I'm just wondering, there are commonalities that I'm sure you found within all these regions. And I'm just wondering if you could share a couple of those commonalities during this period yeah and I'm glad you're asking me about the commonalities rather than the differences because <laughs> I find the differences much harder to pinpoint yeah. but yeah there were definitely common themes that come through and I've sort of mentioned probably most of them already the idea of the female beauty lost in reverie with her eyes closed the female figure diminished to a fairy but embodying a sense which is a way of kind of subjugating women making them small and no threat the association of femme fatale with toxic perfume so you see that i mentioned rossetti venus verticordia but you also see it in for example gustave moreau's painting salome dancing before herod the idea of center drug was another kind of theme that came through very strongly the idea of scent arousing, like I said, with Waterhouse as the soul of the rose, sort of sexually arousing, but also causing lethargy to the point of sleep or death, as it does in The Death of Albine, which is a, a scene from Zola's novel that was picked up by artists from a number of different countries. So that section of the book is, is quite international. Yeah, I mean... It just fascinates me because, I mean, if I think now about our age and social media and just the way we communicate now, the world is quite small, right? But back then, just the fact that there are commonalities across, mm. even across the ocean, you know, to all yeah. the way to the U.S., I, I find that fascinating. But I think the world was much more interconnected than perhaps we give credit for and to try and because it's unusual for, I mean, it's a really good question that you're asking about this because it's unusual for an art history book like this to be so broad okay and that's something where I felt that I could be criticized for you know that painting from a print in, in Russia isn't not going to have much in common with a pre-Raphaelite painting but what I very definitely put in a paragraph to argue is that there is so much transmission of ideas and information through international exhibitions and art journals through posters and prints and uh, you know you can buy a perfume um, in different countries the same perfumes might be on kind of on the market and you might have that um, piece of ephemera from the perfume box of picture that goes into your drawer yeah <laughs> and then later somebody else finds that um, same image you know yeah Okay, this is where it clearly shows I'm not an art history major or, you know, nor is that my area of expertise, which is why I have mm -hmm. you here. But just as a lay person, I find it fascinating that you can actually use the senses 
particularly here in this case, the sense of smell as a way to find the commonality. Because, you know, it seems like in the art world that you said that it, it's, you know, you need to focus on a particular period because what could they possibly have in, in common with each other? But through the senses, you can do that and, and you can kind of find common themes. Yeah, well, I think you have to really do a lot of reading. So I, uh, <laughs> you know, I was reading perfume guides, gardening books, etiquette wow. texts, travel writing, sanitation reports, physiology books about the sense of smell and how that works. You know, so many different kinds of genre of, of writing. And then you start to see kind of themes emerging because um, you're looking for it and too. then you yeah, start to yeah. see oh, okay that makes me think about this painting in a different way and oh well if that's how people understood smell at that time that's how they must have understood this painting yeah, um yeah. so some of the paintings that I talk about are not so well known but then others are really iconic for their genre their movement of art so for example uh, Millet's The Blind Girl is a very well-known pre-Raphaelite painting and I discovered a poem by a very obscure poet. But the poem is about a blind girl sat by a wayside with her older sister, just like in the painting. And in the poem, the blind girl is saying, it doesn't matter that she can't see the rainbow behind her because she can experience the Lord through her other senses and she can smell the odour of the rainbow. So then I started thinking, well, what's the odour of the rainbow? What on earth is yeah. that? And so I was, because amazing thing, obviously, today with all the kind of search facilities that we have, you can, for searching academic, for different journals and resources, searching for the odour of the rainbow. And I found uh, Notes and Queries, which is like a kind of, almost like a Victorian forum. It was a journal where you would write a question that was something that was puzzling you one week or one month and then the following month somebody would reply and somebody would reply the next following and so you get this kind of chain and I found a, a thread on the odor of the rainbow where people were somebody was asking what it was and then other people were sending in passages from different kind of poems and it, it's the scent of the fresh meadow after a rainstorm and the sun's come out and the grass is all dewy and the earth is kind of fresh again so that painting, so much has been written about it, but nobody had ever thought about it in terms of the idea of the odour of the rainbow um, or this idea that she could be grateful um, because she can smell the odour of the rainbow and, and kind of access all the wonders that God has to offer mm. that way. Yeah, fascinating. So if we just take, you know, a step back and, look more generally at our cultural views today versus this period that you explored so heavily. So what would you say is the difference in how the sense of smell is viewed today? Are there any differences now? Or would you say that things are pretty much still the same with just a few nuances? You know, how much has culture, Western cultural interpretation of sense of smell changed? I mean, I think Hopefully what makes my book interesting is that it's uncovered ideas about smell that we just simply don't think of today, like the idea that smell is disease or that scent is a drug that can um, intoxicate or even suffocate us. 
so I think there definitely are ideas like a right period of the rainbow that we just don't think of today but in terms of the sense of smell more general and its cultural status I mean you mentioned that one of my chapters is called the fallen angel which is a quote from Helen Keller and I think that smell still is the fallen angel um, <laughs> that it just true. doesn't have the cultural status of the other senses you know if you um lose your sense of smell and become anosmic it's just assumed you'll get on with things that your other senses will compensate it's no great loss I mean I googled today actually and I saw that there is an anosmia awareness society yeah and um, you know, I doubt many people have heard of that in comparison We're trying to, to bring awareness charities for the blind yeah 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 um I think that there is a revival of interest in smell today and I feel like I've seen that in the period that I've been writing the book because I have been writing it in a way since I started my PhD in 2003 and so certainly in academia there's much more interest in the senses and in, in smell because I mean one of the things that surprised me with the book is actually how all of these images of smell have been there under our noses all along so yeah. it's only because I became interested in metaphors around smell in the critical responses to, to Rossetti that I started looking for images of smell. But, you know, in all of my, I didn't done three degrees in art history, but no lecturer ever pointed out olfactory imagery to me. Isn't that crazy? If you look in the um, index of art history books, you will never find smell listed. Exactly. Or, or any kind of smell related word. But all those images were there and in and certainly for victorian pre-raphaelite and aestheticism are actually really central to that movement but you have to kind of really spell it out <laughs> and put them all together for people again for people to see that so i think smell is having a revival today in academia and in culture more widely but there was a kind of a, a revival in the 1890s and early 1900s so elsewhere, I've written about um, an American artist and critic, Sadakichi Hartman, who set up perfume concerts in New York in 1902 called A Trip to Japan in 16 Minutes, where the idea was that scents would take you on a journey to different countries en route to Japan. Um, but it was very much a kind of fringe yeah culture. Right. I mean, and you see these things popping up today too mm -hmm. there's you know different experimental things done with perfumery tied to art and, and the museums are working together I know Holland does a wonderful job of incorporating scent into art but here in the U.S. I mean here I'm in the San Francisco area and we have a museum called the de Young Museum and every year they do something called bouquets to art and they have floral designers create floral arrangements to certain pieces of art that the museum has and and mm -hmm. it's again it's to me that's a visual connecting with a visual <laughs> it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, it seems you know new and novel although they've been doing it for many years but I just love this idea that I hopefully you spark more excitement more interest in viewing art from other senses other than the visual you know just to kind of smell as an example and I just think there's so much richness and in, in in viewing that more but maybe nowadays in, in modern art pieces like you said there's a book that was written within mm -hmm. the modern art 
world? Yeah, um, I mean, contemporary art is not my area of expertise at all. I think contemporary art is still very visual. But yes, there is a book by Larry Shiner, who's written about scent and contemporary art. And I think there is much more scent in olfactory art than there was now than there was in 1902 when Sadakichi Hartman was doing his perfume concerts. But I don't know, I, I suspect it still is a kind of fringe thing it's just that with the internet and and everything we we're so much more easily able to see what's out there and see the kind of scale of what's out there yeah whereas if we didn't have the internet it would seem very few and far between yeah yeah I just hope museums will start to do more at least here in in the U.S. probably in Europe they're doing more than they are here in the U.S. I don't know yeah so I don't know if you saw it, the Prado last year, they were using something called air, puff, air perfume <laughs> with Bruegel's painting, The Sense of Smell. So a Dutch 17th century painting, which figures many olfactory elements. Ah. And they had a touchscreen in front of it. So people could select on a touchscreen the scents that they would like to experience while looking at the painting. So they had on the screen the image of the painting and you could press the civic yeah. cat or the oh, rose nice. or the spanish leather gloves that a figure's wearing and then you could experience those while looking at the painting and that's been um put together by Puig. yes Puig. Right? yep the, the yeah. brand yeah yeah the spanish perfume um yeah. company um and the idea with that is that it doesn't have any alcohol in the sense so the sense smell true rather than having that kind of alcoholy smell perfumey and smell. yeah 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 and then it only lasts for three seconds and then evaporates completely so you don't get nose fatigue and the room doesn't come to smell and the person behind you um, can't smell what you're smelling but I think they're they're very interested in how smelling and looking at the same time could really support you to look for longer yeah and yeah differently yeah well it's exciting we'll see what's to come I mean it certainly this book will be a wonderful platform for others hopefully to be inspired to to do more and we continue to bring scent in, into the space so I always like to ask my guests three questions at the end and I do share you know the questions so they have a chance to think about it but I'm, I'm so curious to hear what what you have to say the first question being what's your favorite smell right now any smell in the whole wide world and it can change right so just whatever it is right now yeah I mean I was thinking about how every morning the cat wakes me up very early to let to make me let him out and I always stand for a moment at the back door, just taking in some lungfuls of the fresh morning air, which changes, scent changes with the weather and different seasons. But I guess it is the scent of the earth and the flowers. There's a sheep pasture behind the house. Nice. But it always feels so healthy. And I think it was yesterday morning I didn't do that. And then I was kind of beating myself up as I walked back down the stairs and yeah, it just feels like so healthy to do that. And I feel like if I take the time to inhale that morning air, then my day will go better. That's beautiful. I love that. And the second question is, do you have a favorite scent memory you can recall? Anything that comes to mind? 
yeah so I was thinking about the smell of bonfires um, mm. always takes me back to the bonfires of autumn leaves that we used to have at my nan's house when I was a child in her back garden I think because it was so exciting to be out in the dark in November with the sparklers and you'd have traffic light fireworks and Catherine wheels <laughs> nice <laughs> how fun and then the last question what would you say are five smells that best describe you I think do I have I hope I don't have to give a reason for them all because that's where I've always no. stuck. I just think of the scent of old books being mm-hmm. kind of comforting and wise and having a yeah. way with then I couldn't think of anything symbolic for my others. So I think they're just favorite scents really. Yeah. A smell of roast chicken. Um nice. which I can't resist. <laughs> <laughs> the scent of lilac. Oh yeah petrichor the scent of the earth after rain and then I thought of uh, the scent of a tropical hothouse like a botanical conservatory greenhouse like the one at Kew Gardens in Mm. London so a kind of rainforest temperate smell nice I like that (laughs) those are very nice thank you (laughs) well Christina thank you so much for joining me it was such a eye-opening I don't know, insight into all to this specifically into this period. And I want to thank you for just sharing with us how you can take art, the visual and bring new interpretations into it through smell. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. And I should also say that you can get a 30% discount on the Ooh. book. If you go to the Pennsylvania State University Press. Okay website and look for my book and then when you go to buy it put in the code nr23 okay that will get you the discount wonderful i'll put that in the show notes for sure so that people can access it yes i want everyone to go get this book it's going to be a book that you're going to reference again and again like i know i will be so thank you thank you so much thank you thanks for having me Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, smellgym.com, where you can take online classes to exercise your sense of smell for health and well-being. And while you're there, be sure to grab the free guide to help you elevate your smell health with everyday items in your home. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.